It is my privilege today to introduce to you Allie Stokes, who will be speaking um, in this service for our Missions Week, closing out our Missions Week emphasis. Um, I first heard Allie speak um, in a perspectives class that we had last fall, and it was at a church nearby. The blessing is we will be able to have perspectives here at our church next fall, and that's kind of a big deal. So I, I hope for those of you that have not been able to take it, you may be able to do so at that time. Uh, a lot of good speakers with perspective. It, while I've been to seminary and all that stuff and been on more than one or two mission trips, as you guys know, and been to more than one or two missions conferences, I learned a great deal in perspectives. And Allie was an outstanding speaker. And so it is uh, my privilege to introduce her to you today. She grew up in England and came to know the Lord in college and has done work in inner city and in uh, Afghanistan before 9-11. That's probably an important point, right? And also in India. I think also in Pakistan. Anyway, she has done a lot of missions around the world. So I uh, look forward to hearing what she has to say. I know the Lord will minister to you through her. Thank you. Allie? Thank you so much for welcoming me today. So, my friends Alex and Teresa's son Nick is colorblind, as are one in 12 men and one in 200 women. And they recently surprised him with a gift of colorblind correctness glasses. Has anyone seen these adverts on YouTube or on Facebook, right? So, Nick is a pretty even kill guy. And while he was excited about the glasses, he was pleased. He was like, oh, that's nice. He didn't really have the OMG moment, you know, the one you're looking for. Like he runs around going, oh my gosh, it's blue, right? Nothing, none of that, nothing. And then, as often happens in families, they passed around the glasses to see, you know, what everyone else thought. And their son-in-law, Tripp, tried them on. Now, Tripp did not know he was colorblind until the glasses revealed what he had been missing. And this was the YouTube moment. Suddenly, he is running around saying, wait, what? The glasses changed the way he saw everything. That is what our faith does for us. And most of us, just like Tripp, have no idea what we're missing until our eyes are opened by faith. Even more than changing the way we see things, our faith in Christ in a very real way changes the very reality of who we are. Our very core is transformed in Jesus and allows us to see ourselves and the world around us with new lenses. So we're talking about reaching the unreached among us this Missions Week. But I want us just for a few moments today to sit at the feet of Jesus and let him teach us something fundamental that I believe will allow us to see the fullness to which we are called. It will allow us to see the world with new lenses, with more vibrancy, with more color, and hopefully with a little bit more purpose. So I wanna take our reading today out of John 3, verses one through 17. There was a man of the Pharisees called Nicodemus a ruler of the Judeans. He came to Jesus by night. Rabbi, he said to him, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. Nobody can do these signs that you're doing unless God is with him. So 
I love the Gospel of John, right? Like it's just this, this series of little stories that are designed to give us our purpose and our context, and it's so personal. Like you're sitting there. But I wanna, I wanna ask you a couple of questions. What do we think we know about this story? Where are we in scripture? When the youth and I were talking together this morning, we talked a little bit about Jesus causing a ruckus in the temple. And I was saying that that's one of my favorite sides of Jesus. To know that Jesus gets it when you are just up to here with the cultural abomination or you're just, you've just had enough of the devil and all you really wanna do is take a whip and turn a few tables over. Right? That's the Jesus that interrupts our lives and says, I'm not just an addition to your pantheon of gods. It's not enough for me to just be, you know, your comfortable little meek and mild Jesus. This isn't baby Jesus. <laughs> this is get mad Jesus. Right? And then the very next story is Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees probably who was a witness or at least had heard what Jesus had done in the temple. Coming to Jesus, not in the temple courts, not as was his right, confronting this teacher, but coming face to face with someone who with no training, no, no background to back him up, no worldly qualifications, and coming at night, possibly in secret, to ask Jesus a question. He knows Jesus is from God, but he doesn't get it. And I love, I'd love to, for us to sit in the shoes of Nicodemus right now. Because I think sometimes we approach Jesus with so much familiarity and so much that we take for granted that we miss the cataclysmic shift that he's about to share with Nicodemus. So verse three continues. Let me tell you the solemn truth, replied Jesus. Unless someone has been born from above, they won't be able to see God's kingdom. How can someone possibly be born, asked Nicodemus, when they are old? You're not telling me they go back a second time into their mother's womb and be born, are you? Nicodemus and Jesus are speaking the same language and not understanding each other at all. And if you've had any experience with ESL students, you will know exactly what that's like. Especially American English. We are, we are idiom central, right? We have all these things, just kidding. And then you try to translate that. <laughs> just baby goating, what? <laughs> I mean, the, the list goes on. There's some hysterical stories of missionaries preaching you know, I had butterflies in my stomach and I was really just, you know, my heart was in my throat to come and speak to you today. And then you have the poor translator standing next to them trying to explain why there are bugs in the guy's stomach and he's eaten the heart of a person who's standing next to him. <laughs> and it's a little bit like that with Nicodemus and Jesus because Jesus is saying something metaphysical, something extraordinary that you can be born again. And Nicodemus is like, wait, what? That's not biologically possible. And all the women in the room said, amen. <laughs> it's a little bit 
like my husband and I, I married, I married a boy born not five miles from here. He grew up in Carrollton. And the one thing I said to him when we got married, we were both in missions at the time, and I had one, he had one thing that he asked Jesus for, don't make me marry an ugly girl and make us live in a hut in Africa. And I said, please, God, don't make me live in Texas. <laughs> so Jesus has a sense of humor. <laughs> um, now, like, forgive me, all I had seen of Texas was the road from DFW Airport to Frankfurt and Josie. So my entire perspective of Texas was concrete. I, I was not impressed, and it was August, which is not the time that you should come to Texas. <laughs> but Luke and I have a cross-cultural marriage, and a little bit like Jesus and Nicodemus, we think we're speaking the same language. We are not. As you can tell, I didn't grow up here. And I had my own cross-cultural experience when I met Jesus. I grew up in... Um, has anyone here seen Downton Abbey? Okay, does everybody know what I'm talking about when I say Downton Abbey? It's a bit of a cultural phenomenon. So I am exactly as posh as I sound. Um, I'm not joking. I, I, I went to boarding school at the age of nine. And um, my brother is a professional polo player. Not water polo, horses and princes. He's going to a wedding in May. A wedding you might have heard about. He's a professional. He's. It, we are ridiculously posh. My my father is part of the Queen's royal bodyguard for Scotland. My entire life has was defined by being my father's daughter, my brother's sister, and everybody assumes I'm his little sister because everybody knows me as Malcolm's sister. He's my little brother. My entire life is defined by my heritage, by the castle my dad inherited when he was 16, by the boarding school I went to, by my brother's achievements in sport. And when I left the security of home, when I left boarding school, with my identity and confidence in shackers, I went to university and decided that the world had told me how to live and I was gonna pursue it full on to the bottom of every bottle of vodka I could get my hands on. And I was lost. I was a terrible candidate for anything. I looked for my affirmation in all the wrong places. I had no idea how to be an actual human. And on a very cold, but rainier than this, morning in February of 1995, when my life had come crashing around my ears and all of the things the world told me that I should have chased after had come crashing to the ground. I got on my bicycle and I cycled into Oxford looking for somewhere to drown my sorrows, omitting that it was 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning. There is nowhere to drown your sorrows at 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Youth and I talked about that this morning. There is, however, lots of churches. Oxford is not called the city of the dreaming spires for nothing. There were lots of churches, and by the grace of God, I walked into one that, while it looked like a normal church, pointy roof, man in a dress, um, <laughs> it wasn't normal. It was full of the Holy Spirit. In fact, there were 400 students in this church on a Sunday morning at 9 a.m., and I thought, they, I thought I'd stepped onto another planet. 
It's like, what is going on? Why are they all here and why are they happy? Like, what's that about? I walked out of that service completely transformed. That was my OMG moment. That was my physical transformation. I came face to face with the reality of a God who didn't require me to perform for his approval. Who didn't require me to change myself to fit in with his clique. Who didn't care who my brother or father or mother was. Who just said, I've created you for more. And there is a world and a reality that you can't see, but let me show you. A new pair of glasses. And suddenly I exist in a completely different world. I still had to walk through the consequences of my life choices, but I had Jesus. Six months later, I left university and much to my parents' deep chagrin, decided to move to the inner city of Manchester because I believed Jesus when he said that when you're born again, you're a new creation. I believed Jesus when he said that if you overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony, that it changes a community. I did have my car stolen a couple of times. One morning I came home from working in the, from working in the city as a secretary to find my car on bricks. And I knew who'd done it, the, yo, you, the youths, not, not this kind of young people. The kind of youths that you see loitering on corners and you're trying to decide whether you should get out of your car at all. These were the youths that we worked with. This was what I was there to do, to share the love of Jesus, an unconditional, patient, long-suffering love. And for two years I did that, and then they stole the wheels off my car. And I came home and I was furious, right? Table turning over, Jesus furious. And I marched up to these kids and I said, that's my car. And they were like, no, miss, your car's red, miss. I was like, no, that's my car. Put them back. And they were like, uh, as they suddenly realized that the person who picks up the phone call from their juvie officer, who goes and gets them out of detention, who takes them on the summer field trips, they've just stolen her wheels. Next morning I wake up and um, there are brand new BMW tires on my Ford Fiesta. <laughs> Sanctification is a process, people. Yeah. That OMG moment with Jesus in that church in Oxford has led me to some very strange places. But it's only because I really believed him when he said, I'm telling you the solemn truth. Unless someone is born of water and spirit, they cannot enter God's kingdom. Flesh is born from flesh, but spirit is born from spirit. Don't be surprised that I say to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it wants and you hear the sound it makes, but you don't know where it's coming from or what it's going to do. That's what it's like for someone who is born from the spirit. So you might wonder why we're, at, why we're talking about this, right, in Missions Week. You want me to tell you a how-to plan of how to reach your neighbors who don't know Jesus. This is how. Believe it when he says that you have a new identity. It has everything to do with reaching the unreached because you cannot possibly cross the street or the nation or an ocean if you are not secure in your identity in Christ. 
because Jesus himself says it, unless one is born from above of spirit, he cannot see the kingdom. He cannot participate in the life of God's new age. That's what mission is. Something we delve into over 16 weeks in perspective. That every single one of you is called to be part of this new kingdom. That you get to wake up every day and go, okay, Jesus, how are we seeing the kingdom come here, now, on earth, as it is in heaven? Our identity in Christ is everything in that walk. Because if we don't believe it, if we don't believe that we're a new creation, if we don't believe that we are recipients of the most extravagant grace imaginable, then we have no good news to share. Because what our lost neighbors need is not another religious set of rules. If you want to be religious and you just want to follow some rules and knock off your five things to do every day and then live your life in a checks and balances manner, then I suggest you become a Muslim. Because that is a religion. It is five things. A plus B plus C plus D plus E equals heaven. But it's not a relationship. It doesn't give you a life full of purpose and joy and meaning and vibrant color. It provides you with a life full of isolation and fear. We are not to be like Nicodemus, stuck in our religious boundaries. We are to be people who see ourselves as new. And it starts in this room with us believing Jesus when he says that when you are born again, you are a new creation. Think about it this way. If you have to travel, and I travel a lot overseas, what, what, does it, what do you take with you? A passport, right? How do you get a passport? What do you need to pr prove your identity? It's not enough to take your driver's license. If you rock up at the airport in Nepal, they're not going to take your, your Texas driver's license. They don't care that you live on Hebron and your name is Bob Smith. They want to know where you come from. Who are your parents? What's your nationality? What is your identity? That paper absolutely defines you until Jesus. Jesus changes the very root of our identity and this is why it matters. Because I didn't go from boarding school in Oxford straight to Texas. Jesus had me on a little bit of a circuitous route. Um, after the inner city of Manchester, I caught a vision for missions on a short-term trip to India. I remember sitting in a hut which was made up of bits of corrugated tin held together with whatever raffia they could find. And it was a migrant worker camp in Goa. We were right next door to a five-star hotel and there were people living in the most unimaginable poverty under the most unimaginable oppression. Unless you know that this is true, that Jesus really can reach in and change her identity, then shame on you for sharing something that isn't real. If we know it's true, then we have the most extraordinary gift to share. And when I sat down on that mud floor 
and tried not to pass out from the fumes of the bottle of kerosene that we were burning for light and tried not to scream when I saw a rat run across the back of the shelter. And I shared the good news of this God who came to give this untouchable Indian woman and her children new life, and not just when they go to heaven, not just when they die, but a new identity here on earth that frees them from centuries and centuries of oppression, from 300,000 gods who would constantly oppress them. That's the power of knowing who God has called you to be. I spent six years training as a cross-cultural missionary. Six years of my life spent believing God had called me to Afghanistan. And when I finally made it there, pretty much the only person I got to share the gospel with was the minister of vice and virtue, <laughs> who, was, who had gone to Oxford, of all places, <laughs> for university. Uh, and I, the reason I was in his office is I kept getting arrested. Um, there's a thing going around on Facebook right now, and it's like, you know, name one unique thing that you've done that nobody else on my friend list has done. And I'm like, I've been arrested by the Taliban, twice. Um, I was working in Afghanistan for a whole week, um, and it was the most wonderful experience of my life, because despite the fact that it was bombed out, and you couldn't get fresh bread, or water, or really any of the necessities of life on a regular basis, and there was no electricity, and I couldn't walk in the street without getting pulled over by a Toyota pickup load full of Taliban's who were convinced that I was an Afghan woman masquerading as a Westerner so she could move freely. That's how come I got arrested. Um, I saw it differently. Those lenses that God gave me in that church in Oxford showed me a country full of people he made in his image. People he was desperate to reach. People for whom this transformational lens change that we get and that we take for granted was the life that they needed. I adored my time in Afghanistan. And, everyone, and six weeks later, the world was turned upside down and burst into flames. And the country that I had spent six years training to go to be in became a completely closed off nation to me. Partly because of my little red passport and partly because I got stuck on the wrong side of the conflagration. But the only one who could orchestrate a life where that has meaning is Jesus, right? Like I said, the ultimate sense of humor is that I live in Texas, a place, I live in Flower Mound, actually. So I don't just live in Texas, I live in a town where there are more people on the membership role of churches than there are population in the town. <laughs> Destination Christianity. But there's something about this DNA, right? There's something about this core identity that God has given us that will not quit. So despite the fact that I felt like God really didn't like me because he'd put me in the most Christian place on earth, I knew there had to be more. And then one day I sat in a perspectives class and I started to see this glorious picture emerge. I started to see a few things that I had thought were true, weren't true. Things like missionaries have a special calling and a little cape, you know? 
don't get me wrong, missionaries really like it that you think we're special because then you will support us and send us to the places that we need to go. But perspectives show me that every single one of you is called to engage in this extraordinary mission. And that that's not, that that's not unique, that, that high schoolers and preschoolers and retired senior citizens and everybody in between has been called and given a new identity to participate in the work of God's kingdom. That is super exciting. That should have us jumping for joy. Because this way of Jesus, this low, subversive, out of the spotlight way of Jesus is what changes the world. So when we sit with John and Nicodemus and Jesus, and we see this light come on in Jesus, in Nicodemus, we ask, we ask with Nicodemus, how can this be so? And then Jesus goes on and says, well, you're a teacher of Israel and yet you don't know? I tell you the solemn truth, we're talking about things we know. We're giving evidence about things we've seen, but you won't admit our evidence. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can it be if I tell you heavenly things? Are you going to believe then? And nobody has gone up into heaven except the one who came down from heaven, the Son of Man. So just as Moses lifted up a snake in the desert, in the same way the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may share in the life of God's new age. This, you see, is how much God loves the world, enough to give his only special son, so that everyone who believes in him should not be lost, but should share in the life of God's new age. After all, God didn't send the son to judge the world, but so that the world could be saved by him. And if that isn't the most missions-focused verse, I don't know what is. So fast forward a couple of years, and I've been living in Flowermount for um, four years, and I've taken perspectives, and it's like I got another set of glasses. Now, I, I, I've always been a bit of a missionary since, since I met Jesus, and so I had been rather abortively kind of sidling up to people who looked like they didn't belong, and just, you know, like in grocery stores, like awkwardly, like, hi, you look like you're not from here. <laughs> like randomly walking into the Indo-Pak grocery store and just standing there until someone talks to you. Anyone, anyone ever done that? It's really awkward. Well, I made a friend. Um, I was at McDonald's with a church playgroup, and there was this clearly Pakistani girl standing um, to one side and clutching her three-year-old in the McDonald's play tubes. He was not having it. He was like, I want to play. And she, was, she, look, she looked terrified, like she didn't know anybody. So I bounce up to her and go, is she from Pakistan? She goes, yes. I go, what city? She goes, Lahore. I go, that's my second favorite Pakistani city. At which point she goes, what? Because nobody has a favorite Pakistani city. Nobody has a second favorite Pakistani city. This is my friend Aisha. And she and I became friends and with no agenda. She wasn't a project. She was just my friend. And um, the first time she invited me over to her house, I, I went over and uh, she opens the door and she's, her mother-in-law is with her, her mother-in-law from Pakistan who speaks this much English. And I speak this much Urdu. 
I'm fluent in Portuguese, I speak pretty possible Dari and Farsi, but I have no Urdu. <laughs> They're completely different languages from anything I know. And the only Urdu I understand is that which I've gleaned from the odd Bollywood movie. So I can say things like, my name is, and where's the railway station? Because that's very useful when you're talking to someone's 85-year-old mother-in-law. So my friend Aisha invites me in, and um, she's, she, she ushers me into their formal front living room. And she sits me down, and her mother-in-law sits across from me, and she just sits there and smiles at me. <laughs> I'm like, okay. And then Aisha disappears. She puts a movie on in the room for us to watch, a three-hour Shah Rukh Khan movie. Veer Zara, it's a great movie. Um, she, she very thoughtfully puts the subtitles on for me, and then she leaves to prepare dinner. For three hours. Shah Rukh Khan. That's literally all we could say to each other. We could name the actor and we could smile for three hours. When Aisha finally comes out of the kitchen, she says dinner is ready and she invites me to eat with her family. And we start to talk about her life. And over the course of the last seven years, Aisha's become one of my closest friends. She's one of the people who shows up when my kids are sick. She offers to drive people places. She is the nicest person you ever meet. Over the last seven years, she's told me how she's lived on the same street, in the same town, in the same neighborhood for 17 years. And in the course of those 17 years, on her street, where every car has a fish on the back or a Christian school yard sign, not one of her neighbors has invited her over. She's never even been able to meet any of her neighbors. She's even been over with cookies and things because she was told that that's how you meet your neighbors. You bake a plate of cookies and then you take them over and people let you in. That's how it's supposed to work, right? Every sitcom she'd ever watched had told her that that's how it works. And no one had ever invited her in. In fact, they saw her coming and they would just sh shut their blinds and walk to the back of their houses. And she's not a scary looking Muslim. She doesn't wear a scarf. She looks like she could be from India or Mexico. She's just the most beautiful, kind-hearted woman you've ever met, and no one ever let her in. And she says it all the time to me. Oh, Ali, you're my only white friend. And I'm like, I love you. I, I, I mean, thanks for saying me I'm your only white friend. But the question is this. Do you think Jesus would call you to waste your life sitting in her living room smiling? Is that a waste in our productivity, efficient, focused, busy world where it's all about the seven habits of highly effective people and how to get more done in your day? Do you really think Jesus values that quiet, long, low way of serving and loving? The results of You Are My Only White Friend is that over the last six years, I've built up a, a friendship base with about 200 Muslim families in my community. They all go to one mosque. And I am no longer a guest at the mosque. I am just the British sister. If my husband shows up, it's a whole other story. Men, the men walk up to him like this. Are you a missionary? And then my friend's husbands have to come around and go, no, 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 he's the British sister's husband. Oh, oh, you're Ali's husband. We like Ali. 
Aisha was my person of peace. She was the one who opened the door to that entire community for me. She's the reason that I get to sit at um, Amin's. So Amin is sort of equivalent to like a bat mitzvah. It's where the, where the coming of age for the young people in the community and they recite some Quran. But basically it's just an excuse to throw a big party. Get to know lots of Indians and Pakistanis because they throw the best parties. They last forever. But I get invited to a lot of parties now. And at those parties, God opens doors. I've sat in a room full of Muslims at a table full of women wearing hijab as I'm asked about baptism. As I'm asked about, what, what's the deal with Mary? Last December, my son Finley got baptized. And when I sent out the invitations for people to come and celebrate with us, I included all of my Muslim friends. And I had no expectation that they would come. On the day, I get a text from three of my friends saying, where are you? And we're like, well, we said nine because all of our Lebanese friends are very late always. And so we gave them a 15 minute window to make sure they'd try and make the baptism. Um, my Lebanese friends were still late, but my Pakistani friends arrived on the dot at nine because we'd met and they know I was raised by a military man and that punctuality is next to godliness. And when we arrived to witness and to celebrate my son's baptism, there were four Muslims sitting in the pews, right at the front, saving two whole rows for our party. Sometimes wasting four hours watching a movie with someone who just smiles at you, allows you to invite people into your, into your community, into your church. And it was Advent, so they got to hear the whole story they got to see a little preschool presentation of the birth of Jesus. They were in tears at the joy with which we worshiped because they've never experienced grace like that. That's the power of knowing your identity. The security that you can go across the street or across the ocean and share something that not only has value but provides you with a secure identity that isn't dependent on what you wear or who your friends are, or how much value you bring to any community. We are free when we accept our, our identity in Christ to waste our lives on the needy and the lost, on the other. This is why it is my great privilege to share in perspectives classes. Because for me, perspectives was just a second set of lenses I suddenly realized that the purpose of all of those years of missions wasn't really about going to the nations, but it was about, to, it was about being ready for God bringing the nations to us. The reason I spent six years training to be a missionary in Pakistan and Afghanistan was because I was going to end up in a town where there was lots of Pakistanis, where there were lots of Afghans. Just down the road, I had a conversation with a wonderful lady named Fatima who told me her story of escaping Afghanistan. And how she had actually, we actually discovered that I was working in the refugee camp that she was in, running a medical clinic where she was. And she knew some of the places and the people. And she said, all of those people who worked in that clinic, they were just so gracious and so loving to us. Because her, her whole experience of people of faith 
was the Taliban. And then she, come, she met Christians. As we end our time together today, and we walk out of these doors, it is my hope and prayer that you would experience your own YouTube OMG moment. That your vision would be so changed by the reality of this new identity that Christ has given you. That you would see how close Jesus has brought the nations. That you would walk in that boldness that is founded on truth by faith. That you would allow Jesus to make you an agent of restoration in your community. And that you would live with boldness and courage and grace and patience as you meet the nations and love them into the kingdom. If you would, would you pray with me? Jesus, I pray that you would allow us to be a people who so inhabit this mystery of new birth and new identity. I pray that your words would rest in our souls and provide security and boldness for our walk. That we would be a people who walk in power, born out of this new life you have given us. Thank you for our time together. May this expression of your body be a beacon of light on a hill and one that sends out lantern carriers into the darkness. It's in your name we pray. Amen.